1: Hi there, I'm Dexter Fergie. This is New Books in the History of the Social Sciences. Thank you very much for joining us today. On today's show, I'm speaking with Daniel Immervar about his fascinating new book called Thinking Small, The United States and the Lure of Community Development. It was published by Harvard University Press in 2015. Hi there, I'm Dexter Fergie. This is New Books in the History of the Social Sciences. Thank you very much for joining us today. On today's show, I'm speaking with Daniel Immervar about his fascinating new book called Thinking Small: The United States and the Lure of Community Development. It was published by Harvard University Press in 2015. The book rates localism back into the history of development. Daniel traces a troubling history how policymakers and intellectuals tested ideas of community development throughout the 20th century. He finds these ideas in places like Japanese internment camps, in the CIA's meddling in Southeast Asia, and in the United States Peace Corps. His book would be of interest to intellectual historians, international historians, historians of U.S. foreign relations and development, along with anyone engaged in policy debates about global poverty. I hope you enjoy our conversation. We're here today to talk to Daniel Immervar about his new book, Thinking Small, The United States and the Lure of Community Development. Welcome to New Books in the History of the Social Sciences, Daniel, and thanks for being on the show, and thank you for writing such a terrific book. Oh, thanks for having me here. Of course. Um, could you start us off by telling the listeners a little bit about your background, uh, what brought you to history, and how you became uh, interested in the topic of your book?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, the story of how I got into history isn't particularly interested, interesting. I, took some history courses uh, studied with Eric Foner at Columbia studied with under Stevenson there and sort of fell into it. Um, But I did have a extraordinary moment that um, turned out to be more fateful than uh, than I had expected. I was taking an architecture course and I decided that I was on colonial architecture with this architectural historian at Columbia where I had done my undergraduate degree Uh, and the historian's name was Gwen Wright. She was in the architecture department and And I got very interested in colonial architecture, and I decided I wanted to write about uh, the architecture of Hawaii after it became a state. And so, you know, I had this whole paper about that. And uh, Gwen said to me, oh, this is very interesting. Um, You know, you should talk to my husband. I I think you'd have a lot to talk to him about. And usually when people say that kind of thing to you, you, or at least for me, when they say it to me, my reaction is usually to sort of nod and smile and say, of course, I'm sure your husband's a lovely man, and not to do anything about it. Um, but you know, I was feeling expansive and so I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to follow up on that. So I, I made an appointment. Her husband, uh, it was this guy, she taught at Columbia, her husband taught at NYU and I went down, you know, to NYU and I said, well, here's what I've been working on. And he said, well, this is very interesting because, you know the new thing is U.S. and the world, and we really need a better understanding of the United States and how it relates to the rest of the world, particularly to the global South, uh, and a way that it's more than just diplomacy, but it's going to be, you know, putting the United States in the context of global history. And he gave me this speech, and I thought, oh my god, this is incredible! I'll follow this guy through the gates of hell. This is this is exactly what I want. Uh, and it turns out the guy was Tom Bender who was just in the process of uh, writing uh, both his book, A Nation Among Nations, and also writing this anthology, um, Rethinking American History in the Global Age. Or, or it has a title of some, something like that, uh, which became the playbook for me. Uh, so I went to England, and I decided that I was, you know, I got a fellowship to go to England. And I decided I was going to study no U.S. history at all, but I would study the history of India, and I would learn Hindi, and I would study the history of Africa, and I wrote a uh, thesis on African post-colonial architecture and I would study English history, all that kind of stuff because I'd been just so convinced by this guy, by Tom Bender, uh, as it turns out, who, you know, then became someone I read a, quite a lot uh, that, that this was the new thing to do. And this was the way to understand us history. So that's not how I got into history, but how I got into the, um, how I got into sort of the state of mind required for writing the book. Um, the, the, I think each book has at its heart, some emotion. And for me, as I was going through my dissertation and thinking about, or going for my PhD and thinking about my dissertation, which then became the book, um, I, I noticed that I, that the emotion that I was feeling or a productive emotion for me, as I was reading a lot of the literature on us development, us modernization was um, it's not a great emotion, but it was frustration you know, and a sense of just pique and annoyance, um, annoyance with my sources, and um, to some degree, a frustration with other historians for being so indulgent of of some of our sources. So you constantly read people, you know, saying, um, just excoriating top-down development, and then, which is fine, I get that, um, and then making some sort of implicit uh, plea for bottom-up development. And I felt like, I heard that. That sounded to me to be very hand wavy, and I decided I really wanted to take that seriously. So, so I ended up writing this book about bottom up development, um, and and it's written out of a sense of both fascination with the with the possibility of it, uh, with you know, I call it the lure in the title, um, and, and and a real respect for the ideals that that backstop it, and yet at the other hand, uh, a, a kind of skepticism about it, and a feeling that. A lot of it is heavily romanticized and uh, a lot of the stories that we tell about small scale development are, um, you know, coast a lot on a sort of romanticism about what village life is and don't always involve a, a careful look at, at, at how things actually happen on the ground. So those are, where I'd say, the two experiences that, that led to the book, one, the getting into U.S. and the world and the other, a, a kind of frustration with the literature as I found it.
1: Thank you so much for that answer. Well, I, I thank Fate also for bringing you to, uh, to the U.S. and the world. Um, you've already used a, a couple of these terms, and I think your book uh, really revolves around them, so I think it's uh, useful to, uh, to sort of uh, lay out what you mean by them. So you begin in the preface with uh, modernization, development, and community. Um, can you just briefly tell listeners what you mean by those terms?
0: Yeah. And I think it's worth saying a little bit about this because in some ways the term seems so self-evident and, and we use them without feeling a need to define them. And I certainly am not a fan of the kind of history that, that sees a need to define everything. And, and it, it feels that it's achieving something of intellectual greatness in doing that. But I noticed that there was a sort of conceptual confusion here, not just a definitional confusion. Um, and, and there were two confusions that I noticed. One had to do with uh, modernization and development. On the one hand, Modernization is fairly obvious what that means, or or it's it's fairly evident what that means. Uh, It's uh, the putting a nation or an economy down a pathway such that it will become less traditional and more modern. And with modern, almost always understood to mean centralized institutions, uh, bureaucracies, urban rather than uh, rural norms, uh, and a general sort of um, centralization. Of of life, of politics, of of the economy, uh, the in, uh, orientation of the economy toward industry, et cetera, et cetera. I, it's, you know, it's, assume this is not an unfamiliar concept. Um, but what I noticed in a, in a lot of literature was a slippage between modernization, which is has a fairly precise meaning, and development, which is uh, has a much more broader meaning. It just means sort of furthering of uh, uh, the fortunes of an economy or of a a society. And uh, I noticed that historians were using the two interchangeably, which is to assume that development meant uh, and meant for their historical actors meant modernization. And so one thing I try to do in the book is to suggest that uh, modernization is really not the only vision of development. It's certainly not the only vision of development we have now, but more importantly, it wasn't the only vision of development that Uh, development practitioners had in the mid-century decades, the time of the sort of golden age of development, the 1950s, the 1960s. Uh, So in the book, I try to talk about development without modernization, forms of development that are non-modernization oriented or non-modernist, if you want to put it that way. Um, The other conceptual confusion, uh, it's perhaps not quite precisely labeled that, has to do with the idea of community. Um, Because a lot of my actors who were interested in development without modernization found themselves drawn to community and, and forms of development that would support community. They called it community development, uh, the word that is, is familiar to us today or a phrase that's familiar to us today. Uh, and I found that when I was talking to people uh, and telling them what I was researching and saying, I'm, I'm researching community development, there was an immediate assumption, invarying assumption, that uh, that this meant I was offering some kind of celebration of community development because the idea to talk about communities is all, is almost automatically to praise them. And that actually felt like that I was not being heard. I, I, I felt like, you know, that we should be able to talk about community without it immediately assume- being assumed that what we're trying to do is bolster community spirit or without it immediately being assumed that bolstering community spirit is always uh, the best thing to be done. So, uh, In the preface, I I kind of suggest that we need to unthink two things, both the combination of um, modernization and development, that they're not the same concepts, one is a subset of the other, Uh, and two, this notion that um, the sort of romantic aura that uh, hangs around the word community.
1: Wonderful, thank you. Uh, And that segues nicely into the uh, introduction. So yeah so as you've already sort of alluded to uh you know you're uh trying to recover this uh you know way of seeing and changing the world you know bottom up development um but you're certainly not uh glorifying it it's just uh, it's it's in a way to uh to ultimately complicate it um can you tell us a little bit about why this communitarian strain of development has gone so unnoticed by
0: historians well, I think there's a tendency when we look at the past, uh, I call it a sort of knee-jerk barbarianism, a tendency to see the past entirely in terms of centralization, entirely in terms of bureaucratization, entirely in terms of commodification. I mean, it's just, you know, pick your multisyllabic word and, and it's there. Um, and I, I identify this as a narrative that we, that we constantly tell about the past. I call it modernization comes to town. And, you know, the second you see it, you kind of see it everywhere and you realize how many of our books, how many of our articles, how much of our scholarship is really in some ways about telling a story, almost always from a critical perspective. So it could be uh, how small scale lending turns into large money center banks. It could be the story about how small mixed use neighborhoods turn into office parks and suburbs and superhighways. highways. Uh, but again and again, when we're telling the story of the 20th century, it's, it's the story of how small scale viable practices, become large scale, become centralized, and in some ways become, uh, so big that they sort of lose the human element. I, um, if, if, uh, anyone's read the, uh, the political scientist and anthropologist, Jim Scott, who wrote seeing like a state and, and other books, he's, he, I mean, every book he's written is kind of exploring precisely this din- uh, this tension. And I think that a lot of us have taken our marching orders from, from Scott and from others who are who, 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 write, uh, in, in that vein. Um, To the point where we're just, you know, we're telling the same narrative again and again. It might be in a different timescale. It might be in a different locale. But that's the story we tend to tell. Which is fine, except that when that's your story, it makes it really hard to see ways in the past that past actors, including very powerful past actors, have had different visions of what a way forward might be. uh, Who might imagine Ways of improving their society without centralizing their institutions. Uh, who might imagine ways of improving the economy without commodifying everything in sight? Uh, and I, I found there was, there was to be a sort of blindness about that. On the one hand, we register these people, but we, read, we register the resistors, i.e., the, the people who are not um, advancing a modernization agenda. But we usually register them exclusively as sort of romantic holdouts right? You know, the heroic ones who said no, and then just got trampled by the bulldozers of progress. That's how we usually narrate that story. Uh, and that didn't really work for me. I, I I wanted the communitarian urge, the sort of decentralist urge, the, the, the interest in thinking small, I wanted that to be taken seriously, not as just a sort of hold out against the inevitable, but as powerful people with uh, consequential plans, plans that uh, made a difference in the past, uh, who were trying to think about scale think critically about scale just in the way we do today it's so easy for us to think about scale uh and to be critical about top-down interventions uh versus bottom-up ones but we have a hard time really recognizing uh how much criticism there was of that in the past and i think we've kind of uh caricatured our, our past in making this critique
1: perfect thank you um so let's move on to uh the first chapter when small was big Uh, Here you uh, do a fantastic job of showing just how widespread the uh, efforts were to scale down human existence. Um, And uh, so I was wondering if you could just sort of uh, go through some of the uh, uh, major characters and institutions that participated in this turn to the small. I mean, you you speak about uh, Disneyland, Norman Rockwell, uh, a whole array of uh, social scientists. um, And you kind of bring them together in this uh, very fascinating narrative.
0: Yeah. I mean, I won't bore your listeners with a full list, but uh, as I, so I I started this because I was interested in small scale development and community development and bottom up development and grassroots development, all that kind of thing. And, and uh, since I was trained as an intellectual historian, I started following the footnotes of my actors, right? They would write and they would cite people. And I, and I just started figuring out what is this world that they're citing? Who are, you know, what is the world, intellectual world that they're living in? Um, are there a few minor theorists that I never heard of, or is it a much larger ocean of thought? And, and I discovered the latter. Uh, the mid-century decades, uh, it's really easy to understand them as the golden age of technocracy, as an age of thinking big. Uh, and I just don't think that's true. Uh, I think that uh, the, it, it is shocking to me how many major cultural figures, how many major intellectuals, uh, had a deep skepticism or at least deep hesitation about the politics of large, about centralization. And we're interested in the politics of scale. And sometimes we're actively hostile to uh, to anything that would advance the forces of centralization. So just to give some example of that, I, 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 round, I did a roundup of cultural figures who I thought really were kind of cuts the core of the U.S. psyche, of the national psyche at the time, at the mid-century decades. Um, so take one example, Norman Rockwell. Right. You know, he's such a, you know, kitschy painter and yet extraordinarily popular, perhaps the most popular uh, artist uh, in the United States in the 20th century. Uh, Deeply popular today. I mean, still to the point where, you know, you go to doctor's offices and you can see the Norman Rockwell on the wall. Um, There are, you know, Hallmark made for TV TV movies about his paintings. Um, So what's his story? Well, he used to be a New York kind of guy. He lived in the suburbs of New York you know he dressed well um and you know he was a kind of urbanite figure and he would do these uh familiar painting you know the, you know he was painting in the style that we know but uh the paintings that he would do would would just be about sort of stock figures it was kind of a hallmark style of painting you know benevolent grandfather uh you know the curious dog that kind of thing and uh then he has an artistic crisis in the 30s and a lot of people have a some version of this intellectual crisis in the 1930s uh For him, it's a crisis about what to paint and how to paint. He goes to Europe. He comes back. He's still at sea and he picks up Mark Twain and he just, he's going to illustrate the adventures of Tom Sawyer. And instead of just doing the normal Norman Rockwell treatment, you know, you just do a few cute paintings. He goes to Mark Twain's hometown and he starts getting really interested in the small town milieu that is. That you know that is the story of, of Tom Sawyer. That by the way, Tom Sawyer becomes extraordinarily important for a whole host of intellectuals in, in Rockwell's period. He gets really involved in this, and he does these rich paintings, these rich illustrations of uh, of uh, for the book of Tom Sawyer. But then he becomes so entranced that he entran- entranced by this that he moves to a small town. He moves away from the urban life. He's an extraordinarily successful painter. And he moves to small town New England, where he lives for the rest of his life. And then his paintings start changing. Instead of being these just stock figures, uh, they start becoming the the you know against blank blank backgrounds. They start becoming extraordinarily detailed paintings of small town life. That's the Norman Rockwell that we know. And it turns out that that's not how Norman Rockwell always was. That's a that's a political investment that he's made about uh, a, a sort of discovery of the small town. But it's not just him. There's a whole generation of artists and intellectuals who do the thing you you don't expect artists and intellectuals to do. You think of these as urban cosmopolitan figures, and they are cosmopolitan. But starting in the 1930s, a lot of them move to the countryside or get very interested in small towns, small villages or something like it. So one of the most popular plays in the U.S. theatrical repertoire is Our Town by Thornton Wilder which is about the alienation of uh, large-scale life and, and the, the ways in which small-scale living can sort of protect against that. It's a plea uh, for caution about modernization. It's a, it's a deeply nervous play about about modernity. Uh, one of the most popular films in the U.S. Uh, 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 filmic canon is uh, by Frank Capra, who does a series of films on this theme, including It's a Wonderful Life, which people don't talk about this a lot, but it's basically the film version of Our Town. It's uh, a small town examined over a a length of time, and it's basically a a, a hearty affirmation of the values of that small town over and against the values of the city. Uh, The the nightmare in Small Town when George Bailey, um, It's a Wonderful Life, when George Bailey is uh, urged to imagine life without him, is you see his town becomes this kind of, chaotic, urbanized area with nightclubs and jazz and all that kind of thing. But because he's alive, because he's got a small, you know, family-owned bank, uh, the small town has a business anchor and, and and is able to persist as a small town. Uh, Walt Disney is another great example of this. I mean, he's bizarre in this case, because on the one hand, he's really interested in new technologies. And when he starts Disneyland, he has one of his most famous areas uh, of Disneyland. It's called Tomorrowland, where he's projecting into a new future. Monsanto builds a house there called the you know, uh, House of the Future or something like that. Uh, but at the same time, Walt Disney's dad was a farmer, and Walt Disney is deeply is sort of connected to that uh, and, is, and is angry about the, the life that, that his family lost as his family was sort of pushed off the land. Uh, and so at the same time he's got Tomorrowland, he's also got Main Street USA, which is an evocation of the small town, you know, as of 1910 or something like that. Actually, I think that's a great symbol for the United States at mid-century. And, you know, it's not surprising that Disney's the one to produce, it, to produce it. On the one hand, Tomorrowland, looking forward to a new science-driven future. On the other hand, Main Street USA really taking seriously the, the values of small-scale living uh, and traditional forms of living. This is not someone who's totally, uh, you know, over the moon for modernization theory. This is someone who appreciates the ambivalence in the U.S. psyche about, on the one hand, large-scale tech-driven future on the other hand, uh, protecting a a, a traditional way of life.
1: Wonderful. Yeah, I think uh, throughout your book, that's what you do very well, is you take these figures or institutions or uh, uh, these symbols um, that we commonly associate with uh, modernization, and, uh, uh, and you show just how ambivalent uh, those figures, institutions, and symbols actually are. And this is something that you do in the next chapter called Development Without Modernization. Uh, this one takes us into uh, the unlikely territory of the Tennessee Valley Authority and even Japanese internment camps to see how ideas of community development existed within or even sprung from uh, top-down schemes of social transformation. Um, can you tell us a bit about this uh, relationship between um, community development and uh, these institutions that we most, more commonly associate with modernization?
0: Sure. So the standard story, at least the story as I had received it um, in reading about development, was that when it comes to you know whatever is you know Walt Disney thinks or whatever uh, Frank Kapper or Thornton Wilder or Norman Rockwell think, when it comes to development, the United States has been dedicated to top-down, large-scale, often ecologically wrenching transformations. Uh, And that's what it did within its own borders during the Depression, especially with the Tennessee Valley Authority. And then that's what it exported to the rest of the world. And so development, at least as funded by the United States, has been guided by an urge to modernize. And then by the 1950s, the story goes, was guided by a sort of formally articulated modernization theory uh, which, which sort of outlined the basic uh, in- impulse, but the impulse was there before. So that was the literature as I received it. And a lot of it centered on uh, the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority, uh, which uh, started in the 1930s as a way to transform the um, economy, society, politics, and, and even ecology of, this, uh, uh, of the South, of, the, of this massive area, I think roughly the size of Guatemala, that is the Tennessee Valley. Uh, and the idea was by large-scale uh, infrastructural interventions – especially dams on the, on the Tennessee uh, river uh, that uh, the government would be able to um, change uh, both sort of how the economy works by, I mean, the dams would both provide power, but they would also provide irrigation. So that would modernize the entire area. Uh, And then that in, in, and then that in turn would sort of transform society and, and, and people who had been locked into traditional ways of life, locked into traditional economic relationships um, would become modern, would become modern and prosperous. That was, as I read it, uh, the promise of the Tennessee Valley Authority, mm-hmm. and the you know perceived success of the Tennessee Valley Authority then becomes the playbook mm-hmm. for u uh, s uh, development interventions all over the planet, especially in the global south and It's not a surprise that a lot of u s funding goes to building dams just as a uh, just as the United States government had done during the New Deal and the t v a so that was the story as I got it uh and usually. And, you know, the one of the uh, directors of the TVA is this guy named David Lilienthal, who will talk exactly this language. He will talk about the fruits of, of bigness and uh, all the importance of centralization and, and also the importance of expert, of expert management, right? When you have a project as large, really all the authority has to be in the hand of experts. And that part of the achievement of the TVA was uh, a large technocratic intervention. However, David Lilienthal is not the only guy at the TVA. In fact, David Lilienthal, in the early years, has a boss. So someone to whom he reports, Arthur E. Morgan, uh, the the guy's name is Arthur E. Morgan, uh, who sees things entirely differently. And in fact, if David Lilienthal is obsessed with the fruits of bigness, Arthur Morgan is obsessed with small-scale life. And for him, the transformations of the Tennessee Valley uh, Authority are not just going to be agricultural. They're not just going to be in terms of irrigation and power. At the same time, thinks Morgan, Uh, it's really important that the TVA uh, invest in uh, preserving small-scale life. And that might mean uh, local community uh, initiatives. That might mean community education. He's interested in the idea of local currencies, i.e. currencies that are restricted to a locality, in order to prevent the development of these sort of large-scale centralized economies. Um, he and uh, Lilienthal get in these fights about, not just about this, but, you know, about who's going to manage the TVA and what that's going to look like. Um, Lilienthal's is a sort of slick Ivy league educated lawyer. Uh, Arthur B. Morgan's largely self-taught, strongly spiritually Protestant um, who just feels sort of, you know, baffled by everything that all the moves that Lilienthal is making. Um, Lilienthal dismisses, uh, Arthur three Morgan's ideas as basket weaving, uh, and eventually is able to oust him from the TVA. And then Morgan just goes on with extraordinary, he basically retreats into semi-private life. Uh, he's at Antioch College, uh, and he just writes these books about, not about um, large-scale interventions, not about experts, uh, but about small-scale democracy, about community, about community being the only hope for a democratic United States. One of the last books he writes uh, has this terrifically evocative title, Dams and other disasters. Uh, you know, it has a perspective that is, is completely familiar to a lot of historians who were critics of uh, uh, top down interventions. The point is that's baked in from day one. Uh, and in fact, even Lilienthal himself, when he's touting the virtues of the TVA, yes, he speaks about bigness, but he also speaks about democracy. Uh, he also speaks about the importance of participatory democracy. And when he does that, he's taking on the language of, of Arthur D. E. Morgan. Now, that's not to say that the TVA is in its achievement um, a particularly participatory uh, undertaking. It's not. But the point is that the ideology is is really an, a mixed and ambivalent one.
1: Perfect. Thank you. And uh, I don't think we'll have time to discuss uh, the end of this chapter. Um, but I do want to alert the, the listeners uh, to uh, this conference that took place. Um, between uh, uh, more bottom-up community development social scientists uh, like Carl Taylor and and others uh, and modernization theorists uh, who are a bit more well-known like Max Millikan, Walt Rostow, uh, David Lerner, um, it was just a, a hilarious uh you know academic event uh, where no one understood each other uh, and uh, I think it really highlights the um, sort of the epistemological gaps between um, these two camps um, and yeah. I, I do want uh I just wanted to alert the listeners to that
0: uh th- that's right i um, uh, well Ross has not at the meeting, but as these ideas develop as this ambivalence develops about what develop, uh, develops about what development should look like right. These uh, the ideas, the urge to modernize and what I call the quest for community are articulated into theoretical arguments. They have social scientists behind them. And at one point, these social scientists try to have a conference together. They think they're going to be agreeing and they just end up sort of at each other's throats about what the basic point of development is. Is it to strengthen the center or is it to weaken the center? They can't agree.
1: Um, So the next chapter, uh, uh, Peasantville, traces how uh, these ideas of community development were exported to India in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, And like the previous chapter, it shows how a symbol of modernization, um, this time uh, the administration of Prime Minister Nehru, was in fact enamored with ideas of community development. So again, at the center is a deep ambivalence towards modernization. Um, can you explain why community development found such a receptive home in India uh, and uh, why these initiatives were uh, problematic and why they ultimately didn't achieve the goals that they
0: set out for themselves? I should probably explain going in that uh, the assumption has – so if the literature on the United States has has uh, generally asserted that the United States has been committed to top-down modernization, often a sort of culturally insensitive variety – Uh, A very similar charge has been made by Indian historians about the Indian government. And the idea is that uh, for, you know, up until his death in 1948, Indian politics was largely, although not exclusively led by Mohandas Gandhi, uh, who's a strongly spiritual decentralist and believes in nothing, if not communities and uh, uh, participation within them as a sort of model for politics. Then the argument goes uh, after uh, India becomes independent in 47 and Gandhi dies in 1948 passage for political leadership of India goes to, uh, Gandhi's named political heir, although not his spiritual heir, uh, Javahal Nehru, uh, who uh, is the prime minister of India until 1964. And, uh, Nehru launches a series of, uh, five year plans that are geared to, you know, at least partially industrialize, uh, the, the, the Indian economy and the usual claim is that this is the moment when India moves from, you know, being a sort of peasant-based agrarian, uh, having having an agrarian philosophy, uh, to being the same kind of top-down modern force for modernization as the United States was, as the Soviet Union was, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think it's actually a lot more complicated than that. And it's not surprising that it's more complicated than that. Um, Nehru and Gandhi work together closely. Nehru, they're not the same. And Nehru is much more sympathetic toward industrialization and modernization than Gandhi is. At the same time, Nehru, they're part of the same political party. They're part of the same political movement. And Nehru is perfectly aware of the lure of, and to some degrees, uh, the, the um, he's actually persuaded by, it, uh, the claims of Gandhian philosophy, and a lot of other members of the Congress Party are too. So Nehru does something interesting at the same time as he does genuinely try to develop India's industry. At the same time as he does genuinely try to develop the state's capacity for economic planning, uh, he's also cautious about that. And so he launches, literally alongside these uh, uh, industrialization plans, launches the world's largest community development program. The idea being which to uh, that the idea of which is that economic planning should be ultimately grounded in the villages, uh, in the full participation of village communities who will figure out what kind of local resources are available to them, who will plan collectively. Uh, who will take some aid and assistance from the state, but who will just try to use local resources for local planning and that Indian prosperity will not just be a matter of building steel factories. It will also be a matter of uh, consolidating communal effort, which has been prevented by colonialism, but is now possible uh, in the villages of India and India is still overwhelmingly rural. So, Nehru's trying to do two things at once. He, he, like Walt Disney, expresses this ambivalence between Tomorrowland and Main Street USA. Both of them become weapons in his uh, sort of political, you know, or, or in his political arsenal. Um, and it's not clear which he cares about more. I mean, Nehru will say frequently that community development is the most revolutionary thing that uh, India has tried. Um, and he will say explicitly that, it you know, in, in his address to the, uh, to the parliament that yes, it is important that India develops steel factories. Yes, it is important uh, that it do uh, dams and large scale irrigation products, but uh, projects, but ultimately the test of India's prosperity is going to come in the villages. And ultimately that's about community development. So he's doing both at the same time. Now uh, he's receiving, and he's also receiving aid for both efforts from the United States. The United States has full capacity to give aid for top-down industrialization, but it also has the capacity within its government to give aid for bottom-up community development. And in fact, the U.S. sends over a lot of experts who are experts on community, community processes to help with this kind of thing. And it's not a surprise that the United States would have those experts because they come from the same milieu that Walt Disney and Norman Rockwell did. Um, The, you asked about the failure, and I think this is the, the most important thing. Um, it is so common to just assume that if top-down projects are violent, uh, ecologically wrenching, uh, culturally insensitive, that bottom-up ones work. And it's—I mean—it's an easy assumption, and it's assumption that I kind of came into this field with, uh, believing strongly that participatory democracy was was the way to you know the kind of panacea for developmental projects. If top-down development is bad, bottom-up development it works. And it works because people know what they need. And uh, if they can participate in their own development, then they'll make sure that that development is ultimately beneficial to them. Sounds absolutely terrific. It sounded great uh, to a lot of people in the United States. It sounded great to a lot of people in the Indian government. And yet, when you go to an Indian village with the notion that the community will participate and the community will decide what it needs – Very quickly, what you find out is that the community is not just one thing. There are lots of different people in a typical Indian village community, and it's not just there's difference, there's stark asymmetries of power. Men have an enormous amount of power over women. Landlords have an enormous amount of power over their tenants. Money lenders have an enormous amount of power over debtors, and often those uh, forms of power overlap, right? So you'll have a, you know, in a very small scale way, you will have a local oligarchy, and a large group of uh, landless people, uh, uh, women, debtors, who are to some degree in their thrall. And it happened again and again. We have anthropologists describing this. We have sociologists describing this. We have government reports describing this. We have Ford Foundation reports describing this. Again and again, when uh, local governments were given some control over how to disperse resources or were asked to produce uh, economic plans, they tended to produce plans that were either entirely to the benefit of caste leaders entirely to the benefit of landlords, to Brahmins, that kind of thing, or at least wouldn't come anywhere close to threatening them. I mean, you see a lot of you know d- proposals for a new well, and that sounds like a great thing, or a new road, and they tend to be located you know right near the village headman's estate. Uh, what is almost impossible to find is, uh, although there's a few exceptions to this, uh, it's almost impossible to find in most Indian villages a community development scheme that results in villages proposing land reform that results in villages proposing an abolition of caste privileges that results in village uh, villagers proposing uh, an abolition of sort of patriarchal institutions. Uh, So these community organizations, which sounds so great, end up firming up uh, the local power holders and end up being extraordinarily conservative institutions. And this is actually known by the, by people in the Indian government, the ministry uh, for uh, the ministry of community development has a head who says explicitly Our goal for political progress is not to have um, poor peasants in charge. They're unable to make decisions. Their role is to follow. We're going to have to rely on uh, educated, rich people within these villages to make decisions. That's how progress gets made.
1: Perfect. I think you used the phrase uh, backhanded authoritarianism uh, to describe that, which I thought was a a useful uh, concept. Um, uh, just, Just to be
0: clear, I... I I was kind of of riff off Mahmoud Mamdani's notion of um, decentralized despotism, Ah, right? Uh, The authoritarianism happens, but it doesn't happen directly from the head of the state. It's kind of Mm. subcontracted.
1: Wonderful. Thank you for that. Um, So let's move on to chapter four titled Grassroots Empire. Uh, And here you take us to the Philippines and Vietnam. And uh, sketch out a different type of community development than uh, what happened in India. Um, can you uh, tell us a little bit about um, th- those differences and uh, again the, the problems that um, uh, that marred uh, these community development initiatives?
0: Sure. So in India, if the problem of community development is is really a problem of development, is, is how to make India less poor and more prosperous. That's that's the problem, as recognized. By the Indian government. That's the problem is recognized by the United States. There's some concern in the United States that if India is unable to resolve its problems with poverty and is unable to achieve a kind of uh, rural peace, that it might go communist. The U.S. ambassador to India actually thinks that India has a 50-50 chance of going communist the way that China did. But Nehru is largely uh, the prime minister of a a, um, stable state. There's not a, a direct threat of communist revolution in India. That is not true in the Philippines. The Philippines looks really different. Um, the Philippines had a tumultuous war during World War II, a war that pitted largely—this is an exaggeration or a, a caricature, but it's, it's it's a caricature in the right direction—pitted um, a landlord class and a, and a rural oligarchy that largely sided with the Japanese during the Japanese occupation of the Philippines against um, large uh, peasant guerrilla armies uh, who fought in the resistance and then who expected. After the war was over and after the Japanese were defeated, uh, that they would have and after the Philippines got its independence, which it did in 1946, that they would have a larger scale and go- a larger role in government. Um, the United States, as it was sort of reestablishing a Philippine state and putting its weighty thumb on the scales, uh, pushed a lot of power back into the old uh, landlord controlled oligarchy, including, uh, into, uh, men who had actually served in the Japanese government. Uh, and very quickly, uh, the, the independent Philippine government engaged, uh, in, uh, an attempt to repress, you know, it's, it's rural resistance and, uh, what had been a political contest in elections quickly devolved into, uh, outright war, uh, napalming of villages. Um, with using U.S. planes or U.S. napalm uh, and U.S. advice, uh, but done by the Philippine government. Uh, by the early 1950s, it was really unclear if the Philippine government was going to be able to persist. Uh, the president of the Philippines, the second president of the independent Philippines, this guy, Alpidio Carino, uh, was uh, known to have kept a motorboat outside of the, basically, uh, the White House, in the Philippine White House in Manila, uh, the Malacan Palace, Palace, um, in case he had to escape in case uh, the uh, peasant armies uh, called the Hukbalahap or the Hawks in this period uh, marched on Manila, he'd be able to escape. So that's the situation the United States is facing in the Philippines. As in India, it you know collaborating with uh, uh, local elite, it deploys community development. But here the point is only peripherally actual economic development. Here the idea is that community development will be a way, will be part of a counterinsurgency effort. And the hope is that by going into villages and um, engaging in these sort of collective action projects within villages where peasants will come together with landlords, um, uh, where debtors will come to- together with moneylenders, lenders, uh, that the, the village will be welded together as an, uh, a sociological unit with some sort of communal spirit rather than, and this is the fear, uh, all peasants banding together together. Uh, within a village, and then with peasants in in the next village and creating a a, a class-based revolution. So uh, as U.S. Cold Warriors see it, the communal basis of organization becomes a way to block uh, the horizontal sort of uh, peasant class from emerging. If peasants have more in common with or more fellow feeling with their landlords than they do with other peasants, then you don't have revolution. So that's the hope. And it turns into, it's kind of the carrot. Uh, and and a stick right community development becomes a pitch to try to uh you know uh promote anti-communism and try to keep villages away from uh what is literally an armed insurrection in the philippines and then you know when that doesn't work there's napalm Mm
1: -hmm. thank you so much for that it's a really terrifying use of uh community development um let's move on to chapter five uh which uh again shifts the narrative uh geographically this time back to the united states um, and in particular, uh, to Lyndon Johnson's uh, war on poverty, but there are these global dimensions to this uh, to the 1960s, to the war on poverty. Uh, can you help uh, sketch those out for us? Uh, how uh, community development went from the global south to um, these uh, urban um, uh, geographies in the United States, uh, and, uh, and and how did community development? Uh, look in the United States uh, compared to the Philippines or India?
0: Yeah, um, you know, there's been a lot of scholarship on the war on poverty. And one of the mysteries in that scholarship is, uh, is this when the war on poverty is under the Johnson administration is first rolled out. It is strongly participatory in its animus. The, the centerpiece of it, although certainly not the only part of it, is something called the Community Action Program. And the idea is very similar to the community development schemes I've, I've described in India and the Philippines. Uh, the idea is that localities, in this case urban neighborhoods largely, uh, are going to be responsible for uh, overseeing their sort of own flight out of poverty. And that local groups uh, are going to receive dire- directly, will receive federal funds uh, and, that, that, you know, they'll kind of do the act of community building that is supposed to build capacity, et cetera, et cetera. And so poor people will grow up less poor. That's the hope. Uh, why scholars have been so interested in that is that it very quickly turns in this bizarre direction or perhaps expected direction. Um, but a lot of, you know, in poor neighborhoods in the United States, a lot of local community groups or the local community groups that can be prodded into existence or at least induced into existence by the uh, uh, the promise of federal funds are fairly radical. Our militant civil rights organizations, some of which are uh, tied to black power, uh, have agendas that go far beyond uh, general improvement of neighborhoods and go toward uh, supporting labor unions, um, taking out uh, Republican political candidates or even Democratic political candidates who are judged to be uh, unhelpful to poor people, uh, who are really trying to make turn, turn the war on poverty to be a war on the rich, uh, who have a, 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 at least an oppositional, if not a revolutionary agenda. So the, the question for a lot of scholars has been, how did this happen? How did the U.S. government think it was a good idea to directly fund community institutions in impoverished areas? Uh, it hadn't had a long history of doing that before. That hadn't been the policy in the 50s. Where did this come from? And um, a lot of the scholarship has just been trying to puzzle that out. What I was able to see is because I was looking at this from the perspective of transnational or global history rather than from the perspective of urban history uh, or just U.S. political history is that it comes from overseas. It comes from overseas not just because there's a resemblance between overseas community development and domestic community action programs. It, 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 It comes from overseas because the people who set up community action in the United States had direct experience working with U.S. foreign aid. And many of them had been in India, especially India. Uh, Some of them had been in the Philippines. And you can just trace the circuits as the people who are designing the community action program in the United States are, are, are learning from attempts to do this overseas, including the fact that the guy who... Is the chief architect of uh, the community action program, uh, who's the head of the uh, organization for economic opportunity. It's kind of Sergeant Shriver. Is also simultaneously the head of the Peace Corps, an organization that's been doing a lot of community development overseas. And Sergeant Shriver is absolutely explicit that this is the same thing. Right? We did it. You know, did it in Latin America. It looks like this. You do it uh, in the United States. It looks like that. We call it community development there. We call it community action here. It's the same thing. However, there is a difference. Uh, the difference is not an intended difference, but the difference is an actual difference, um, which is that an Indian village and uh, a a U.S. city simply look different. Uh, If in an Indian village, there is a rural elite, an oligarchy, Brahmins, landlords, moneylenders, uh, you don't actually see that geographically in a lot of U.S. cities. Sure, there are landlords, but do they live in the neighborhood? Uh, sure, there are powerful people who determine the fates of people who live in poor neighborhoods in the United States and in U.S. cities, but are they actually on the ground? It turns out when it comes to for these neighborhood organizations to form that those people just aren't part of it. And what had been at least attempted by the United States to be a way to firm up a sort of cross class alliance of all the people who live in a locality, i.e. a village, works really differently if the village you're describing is not an urban village, but is actually a ghetto. Uh, which consists entirely of poor people. And I think that explains a lot of the revolutionary animus that comes out of this participatory program, a participatory program that uh, U.S. policymakers could well have expected would have had fairly conservative results just in the way it had in India and just in the way that it had in the Philippines.
1: Wonderful. Thank you for that answer. Uh, I, I do want to uh, discuss the uh, epilogue um, because uh, here you bring uh, this very large uh, and windy story together and you uh, make some fascinating uh, observations on the uh, basically the, the career of uh, community development and uh, and the, the state of community development today. Um, could you uh, uh, walk us through some of those arguments in particular like what what does community development look like today? Um, uh, how did we get here uh, from uh, your story, which uh, uh, ends a few decades prior? And finally, w- what the limits and problems of localism uh, and community development were and continue to be?
0: Yeah. Well, I think a lot of the development, developmental projects from the 50s and 60s, the sort of large dam building, the establishment of engineering schools, steel factories, all that kind of stuff, um, much of that has gone out of fashion, and some of that is just simply less prevalent, although you know, China is building uh, dams at, uh, at an extraordinary rate. Um, but community development, by contrast, is going strong. Uh, it, is, it is more intellectually popular among the development community than it was in the 50s and 60s, and it had some popularity then. Uh, and it's just the kind of thing that educated people will reach to when they think about development. If they you know, have this sort of sense in their mind that, uh, top down interventions don't work. Bottom up interventions should be great. So if you just think about all the kinds of sort of famous forms of development that you think that you can um, imagine today, micro loans, micro credit, um, small scale aid, especially directed at women, uh, a lot of that is, uh, still the politics of the small and a lot of that is, um, inspired by the same ideals or and sometimes by the same people that inspired the community development movement. So this is very much with us today. Uh, the World Bank has sort of as, as of the 1990s has really taken a turn toward um, development projects that build social capital. Uh, that That's one of the, the new terms uh, used, um, but toward uh, culturally sensitive, small scale bottom up development projects. So this is very much with us. And yet I find uh, that there's still a sense of romanticism about it. There's still a kind of hand waviness about, um, you know, how in a sense that every problem will be solved as long as uh, deference is made to the people, the, uh, the, uh, some, uh, two of the lead economists at the World Bank uh, did an enormous meta-study of all of the def- different studies of all of these community programs and participatory programs that have been undertaken in the last 20 years or so, uh, and what they found was actually the, the benefits are modest at best. And the benefits are modest at best for the same reason that uh, people could could see already happening in the 50s and the 60s is that when, you know, communities are still – rural communities uh, and even urban communities are still not egalitarian places. And if you go into an inegalitarian place and you just hand power over to the community, you know, it's like going to the Jim Crow South and handing power for school desegregation over to the local school board, right? You've got a serious problem about elite capture. Now, it's small scale. Uh, It's not, you know, it's not some large government bureaucrat uh, sort of siphoning off funds for corruption, but it's still elite capture. Uh, And it's happening again and again, and it's happening today. Um, So so that's kind of part of why I wanted to write this was uh, to write a history that I felt like would be relevant today. But the obvious question that everyone asks is, you know, when you write any history of development is so what should be done or they often ask it you know sort of slightly phrased differently. So what should we do? Um, The assumption being that, you know, the United States or the global North uh, should do something. And, um, you know, I mean, modernization theory was very much of that ilk, right? What should we do? What should we do for poverty? You know, what should we do to poor places in the world to make them less poor? The attractive thing about community development was that it asked a slightly different question, uh, rather than what can we do to you, what what should we do with you, uh, or how can you know we, i.e. the global north, work with the global south uh, in some kind of cooperative way? But for me, the question is actually the real question to ask is is different. If if you're going to use these we they terms to refer to the global north and the global south, uh, the question is not what can we do for you or what can we do with you, but the real question about poverty is what have we done to you? Uh, because if you zoom out, if you st- instead of going local. If you go global and you just sort of pan the camera back or, you know, zoom the camera out as much as you can, uh, what you see is that a lot of the reasons that places are poor doesn't have to do with failures that are happening on the level of the neighborhood or the village. A lot of the reasons that places are poor has to do with failures that are happening on the level of the international system. Uh, and they're not hard to, to point out. Uh, but once 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 you're looking at that scale, you start to realize that a lot of the action that can be taken to help poor people be less poor, might not be taken in the areas where poor people live. Might be taken in the U.S. government. Uh, there are a lot of things that the U.S. government does that perpetuate poverty uh, in the poorest areas. D- d- those, this thing, but the, those things don't happen in the poorest areas, right? The the cause is not uh, is not in the same location as the effect. Um, so, just very briefly, I'll, 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 I'll name three that I that I focus on in the book. Uh, one is trade, and I mean we've known this for a long time that uh, powerful nations use their power to negotiate uh, trade regimes and regimes of intellectual property that benefit them and benefit corporations within their borders uh, rather than you know doing so out of some humanitarian interest. That's not a surprise. But the problem is that provides a serious headwind uh, against economic growth in the places that need it most, in the poorest, poorest places on the planet. Uh, another one that we don't think of but it strikes me as enormously important and, and it, why it's important is coming up today is immigration. Uh, a major reason that people are poor or made the the biggest determinant of people's poverty or wealth uh, is not who they are. It's not who their parents are. It's not their gender. It's not their age. Uh, it's not even their education level. It's where they live. It's where, what country they live in. That is the greatest determinant of your economic destiny. And if that's the case, then you think that the solution to poverty or at least a solution to poverty uh, would be to let people move. And we don't do that. Um, uh, rich countries lock poor people out of, out of their borders uh, as a matter of, of, of general practice. Uh, and that's not usually connected to the development debates, but it really should be uh, because one of the easiest things to do, especially the easiest things that rich countries can do to help poor people is to have more obliging immigration uh, 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 policies. I'll finally just mention the, the last one because to me it is the most important thing. Uh, I think if you're thinking about poverty today and what the people who live in poverty are dealing with, uh, part of it is is just straightforward poverty. Um, But there's something else that's happening today that I think is actually going to compound poverty and make it far worse to be poor, which is global warming. We are absolutely destroying the planet. Uh, We've raised global um, temperatures a little less than one degree Celsius uh, so far since the Industrial Revolution. Business as usual is going to rate, by the end of the 21st century, uh, we're talking four, five, maybe six degrees Celsius I mean, This is going to be absolutely ecologically catastrophic, and it's going to be The worst in places that are the poorest, not for two reasons. One is that some of those places are tropical and they're going to bear the brunt of rising sea levels and storms uh, more harshly. But more importantly, because if you're poor, you don't have resources uh, and, and you don't have the resources to deal with climate change. Now, this is something that is not been committed, a sin that has not been committed by poor people who've played an only minimal role in bringing about global warming. Uh, it's the richest of us uh, who have, have played the largest role. And yet the cost is going to be absolutely borne by poor people. So I think if you are concerned about poverty today, uh, your concern should not be, or, or my concern is not primarily What's going on in poor neighborhoods and do they have enough community spirit and are there things we can do uh, to sort of encourage them to learn from each other or, you know, apply local knowledge uh, in interesting ways to, to old problems? No, my concern would be, what can we do to stop global warming? And the answer there is not going to happen in Bangladesh, but it's going to happen to Bangladesh. Uh, the ans- uh, Global warming is going to happen to Bangladesh. And the answer there is going to have to be, um, you know, confronting uh, the richest countries on the planet.
1: Absolutely. Uh yeah, your your epilogue uh, uh although it's uh really commenting on the present and the future, um it, it it beautifully ties in and is supported by uh this history of community development. I think it really uh makes some very well-grounded um uh, suggestions and original as well. Uh well, thank you so much. Uh I just have one final question uh which is uh can you tell listeners what you're working on right now?
0: Oh yes, I'm so excited about it. <laughs> uh, so one of the chapters in this book was about the Philippines, and uh, I went. So I did archival research in the Philippines, and then I did all this historical research on on the the history of the Philippines in the 20th century, just to you know prepare myself to 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 say what I had to say about the Philippines in the 50s. And as I was reading all this stuff about uh, the Philippines in the 20th century before the 1950s, so most of which it was uh, under uh, U.S. government from 1898 to or 1899 technically to 1946 when the Philippines is a part of the United States, I realized that as a U.S. historian, I hadn't been told any of this stuff. I mean, not any of it, but but I just kept reading things where I thought, wow, why didn't I know that? Why, why wasn't hmm. I chiefed? Uh, how was this kept from me? So I decided to... So I got more and more interested in this, and not just in the Philippines, but in the entire U.S. overseas empire, and I, I mean the formal empire. So Alaska, Hawaii, um, uh, Guam, American Samoa, Puerto Rico, the Philippines, and and so I'm writing a book now. It's a it's a trade book, so it's meant for a, a larger audience than just an audience of academic specialists. Um, that is a a sort of survey of, and, and actually the first one written since the 1960s of the U S overseas empire. Wow. It's an overview of the empire. It's a history of the empire. Um, starting, I mean, it starts with the sort of Indian territory and, and Western territories in the 19th century and it goes up to the present. Uh, it's a history both of what happens in this empire where so many people live. I mean, just, uh, you know, in 1940, if you live in the United States, I, if you live in, in U S territory, either in a state or in an overseas territory, uh, you are more likely to be colonized than you are to be black by odds of like three to two. Wow, That's how many people, it's like millions of people live in the overseas territories um, and we almost never talk about them, So are we meaning historians. So the book is both a history of, of, of the territories and of, of the people who live in them, but it's also uh, a history of the ways in which that, the ba- that basic fact, which is that the United States has had a fairly ample empire uh, for much of the 20th century, is, is hidden. So the, the title of the book is called How to Hide an Empire.
1: Wow. Well, thank you so much uh, for the interview, and I uh, greatly look forward to reading what comes of this project. Thank you so much, Daniel.
0: It's a pleasure, you.